Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. You know, sometime after the cassette tape was done away with, I remember this was... um, when I was in uni sometime, uh, they brought out these large LCD discs. Um, They were about that size. And it was a a big craze for for just a short few years, maybe, I don't know, two, three, maybe four years, uh, certainly not a long time. And everyone was talking about it and everyone... uh, you know, they were quite expensive at the time, and people were scrambling to get these devices so they could play these massive LCD discs. But for whatever reason, I don't know what the fault of that large LCD disc was, within about four or five years, it became obsolete. Uh, I remember one of my dad's friends who is um, very much into audio, video, technology stuff, he was one of the first few to get this, and he had uh, a few of these discs and this big machine as well. Uh, but he was saying, now what's the point? I mean, they've just done away with this thing that was all the fad, and, and it was right after that the, the compact disc came about, the small CD, as we would call it, came out. Um, and so because of that, you couldn't use that big disc anymore anywhere else. It had become obsolete because something new had come in its place. Now I say that just because, just by way of illustration, because what we're going to look at this morning is uh, about two covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant was something that operated for a while, it was designed by God, had a purpose and operated for a certain time in biblical history and then it became obsolete and then what has now replaced that is God's new covenant that is at play and will continue to be at play. In fact, what's even interesting is you think of the terms Testament, Old Testament and New Testament, really the word is covenant. It's really Old Covenant and New Covenant if you were to actually think about those two words as testament. They actually mean covenants. So really even the Bible you know, separates itself, or we call it as the Old Covenant or the Old Testament and the New Covenant or the New Testament. So just by way of reminder, the, the author of Hebrews has been talking about the, the magnificence of Christ. And he's been getting his readers to think about how great Jesus is, his person and his work. And he starts off by saying that God has revealed himself. His final word has been given in and through his son. And his name is Jesus. This son, this this messianic son, he is a great king who will come and establish his kingdom. A kingdom where righteousness and joy and peace and love will reign. And yet this son, this son is so great that he is even greater than uh, the angelic beings. 
Because no angel has been given this great privilege of being seated at the right hand of God and being called as the Son of God. But this Son of God, this Jesus, this incarnate Son, this God-man, he is also a man. And the reason why he is a man, because ultimately, as God-man, he will come and establish his rule, and a man will rule over all the earth. And this man, Jesus, will fulfill the role that was given to mankind, to Adam and Eve, to rule and reign over all the earth in the garden, and will restore the purpose for which man was made. Then he went on to tell us that this, this man is greater than even some of the greatest men in the Old Testament. He's greater than Moses. In fact, he's Moses' God. He's greater than Joshua. He's greater than even Father Abraham, the, the great patriarch, the father of the nation. And then in saying that, then the author starts putting in hints that he's actually this great high priest of a different order altogether. And when you think of Jesus being a high priest, that's also one of the reasons he had to be a man. See, because mankind sinned before God. And so to put things right, there had to be a man that had to go before God. And so therefore the priest had to be a man. And so even in that sense, Jesus became a man in order to be a priest for us. He was made like us in every way and yet without sin. And yet he was a priest of a different order. He wasn't just like the Levitical priest. He was a priest and a king. Because a priest and a king, where two of these offices come together, only that combination in a perfect man can achieve, ultimately achieve, God's uh, plan of salvation. Plan of salvation in some form that was talked about in the Abrahamic promises. And then last week we saw that he was talking about really... Jesus is not just the greater priest, uh, by implication it also means that he has a greater ministry. In fact, if you look down at verse 6 of chapter 8, his conclusion to that section is, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So there's been a slight shift in the emphasis now. So going from the superiority of Jesus' priesthood, he's getting into the ministry of Jesus as a priest. And what he argued in verses 1 through 6 is that look at Jesus. He's a man who is seated at the right hand of God. He has such an exalted position. There is a man seated, a high priest seated at the right hand of God. No other high priest was ever given this privilege. So even that shows then the ministry that Jesus, Jesus is about is much greater than the Old Testament priests. 
But then he also went on to say, Jesus is ministering in the, the true tent. He's in the true holy place. And where is that? In heaven, in the very presence of God. Jesus is not in some earthly copy. That's what the tabernacle and the temple was. It was just a mere shadow, a copy of this greater reality of the dwelling place of God. And so Jesus is ministering from this true tabernacle, this true dwelling place of God, in the very presence of God. And so by implication, his ministry as a priest is also far greater and far more effective than all the other priesthoods that have come before. And then he, essentially in verse he says, and this better ministry of Jesus really is tied to the fact that Jesus has a better covenant that he mediates. And so now the passage that we're looking at, verses 7 through 13, is really going to talk about the greatness of this new covenant that Jesus mediates. And we're going to look at this section under two headings. We're going to look first at the problem with the old covenant. That's in verses 7 through 9. And then we're going to look at the promises of the new covenant in verses 10 through 13. And just really see how this new, that Jesus indeed mediates a new and better covenant. So first of all, what's the problem with the old covenant? Verses 7 through 9. And it really talks about why then, because there was this problem, there had to be a new covenant. Verse 7. It says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now the first covenant here is... First in the sense of old, as he's contrasting it with the new. It's not saying that's the, the very first covenant that God has made, because the very first covenant that God made was with Noah, and there was one with Abraham, and then this is the next one. So this first covenant is referring to the old covenant, or the Mosaic covenant. The covenant that God made with the people of Israel under Moses. And he says that if the first covenant had been faultless in the sense of not having any weaknesses or deficiencies. His point is, if the old covenant didn't have any weaknesses, if it didn't have any deficiencies, then there would be no need for a second covenant. I mean, it's a similar argument that he's used before. If you remember in Hebrews 7.11, where he said, if perfection that's the, the work of salvation, could be completed by the Levitical priesthood, then there would be no need for another order priesthood from the Melchizedekian uh, order. And so similarly, he's using a similar type of argument, and he's saying if there was no weakness within the old covenant, there would be no need for a second covenant. But there is a weakness, there is a problem in with the old covenant. And then he explains himself in verses 8 and 9. He says, For he, that's talking about God, finds fault with them. Who's the them? It's talking about the people. 
And here he quotes from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, which was part of our Bible reading this morning. It's the, the longest quotation of the Old Testament found in a New Testament passage. And so when he's talking about he, that is God finding fault with them, he's talking about God finding fault with the Israelites, the people who were under the old covenant. And this is what God said about these people who are under the old covenant. And he quotes from Jeremiah 31, 31 to 40, 34. And he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Now a covenant, or a covenant relationship. You could say a covenant relationship, it's a committed relationship. Where you have two parties making binding promises to each other in that committed relationship. And often that relationship is marked with a love and faithfulness toward each other. Now you can think of a marriage, that's a covenant relationship. Where the man and the woman, they bind themselves in a committed relationship before God. And they pledge themselves to one another, their loyalty and their love to one another. And they make other promises to one another. And they say, till death do us part, may it be so. And, and so when we look at the Bible, we see God initiating his plan to save his people and to redeem all the earth and reverse the curse and establish his kingdom. And how he does that is through a series of covenants in the Bible. Now God made a covenant with Abraham and he made promises there, there which essentially talked about, remember, reversing the curse and the blessing coming to the to the nations and, the, and the, the nation of Israel would come about and the promised seed. And all that is pointing to ultimately restoring the world and salvation to people from all every tribe and tongue and nation. That's what it's pointing to. But then after some time, as we come to the book of Exodus, God then redeems a people for himself from Egypt. Who are they? The people of Israel, descendants of Abraham. And God brings them out of slavery. And notice the language again in verse 9. He says, I took them by the hand and brought them out. That sort of language, it, it speaks of God's tender love and care for the Israelites. That God rescued Israel from Egypt because of his love and his care. And he brought them out tenderly and graciously. And then he enters into a committed covenant relationship with this people. Makes them into a nation and enters into a covenant relationship with Israel like a marriage relationship. And there were covenant obligations made on both sides. And from the human side, from the people's side, they were expected to be faithful to their covenant. 
by keeping the law that God had given to them. And then, in listening to everything that God said as he gave the law, the people of Israel in Exodus 24.3 says, Okay, Lord, we will do everything that you have spoken. We will be faithful to this covenant. Now, after this, after the law is given, Moses goes up to the mountain again to meet with God for about 40 days. And just in that short period of time, I mean, it's, it's within those 40 days, they make a golden calf and bow down to it. I mean, how quickly the people were unfaithful to God. And this was not just a one-time slip-up. Oh, no, no, no. This was a regular occurrence. In fact, they were never faithful to God. Listen to what Jeremiah 7, 24 to 26 says. Talking about the people of Israel. But they did not obey or incline their year. But they, were, but they walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backwards and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets to them, day after day. Yet, they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck, and they did worse than their fathers. See, the people of Israel continue to be unfaithful to God. In fact, the language in Jeremiah 3 is even stronger. Let me just read Jeremiah 3, verses 6 through 10. Listen to this. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, the faithless one Israel? How she went up on every high hill? And under every green tree, and there played the whore. And I thought, after she had done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister, Judah, saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear. She too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense declares the Lord. Very strong language. See, the picture here is of an unfaithful spouse and not one who's just unfaithful once, but just repeatedly, again and again and again and again. And what it's showing is that the people, they broke their covenant obligations to God and ran off with other gods, with other idols. 
Now you might be thinking, so how does this relate to the weakness of this first covenant or the old covenant? See, under the old covenant, God got into that covenant relationship with the people of Israel. Remember, he gave them the laws. And the people were obligated to obey that law that God had given. The law said, do this. And the people, they were expected to obey him. But the problem was that under the old covenant, the people had no ability, no power to faithfully and perfectly obey the law. But here's the thing. God was still gracious because when they sinned, there was still provision for the animal sacrifices, which pointed to a greater sacrifice that God would provide ultimately for the forgiveness of sins. So now in case you're wondering, so what was the point then of the old covenant law then if the people didn't have the ability to to be changed and saved? Well, the point of the old covenant law is this. It was to teach the people the character of God. It was to teach the people about God's holiness and righteous standard. And so when the people couldn't keep the law, then it would reveal their sin. But even when it revealed their sin and more and more of their sin, as they couldn't keep the law, there was also provision of sacrifices for their sin. So what the people had to do was believe by faith in all the provisions that God had given to them at that point. Where they could come back to God, acknowledging their sin, that they don't have the ability to obey the law perfectly, and then offer their sacrifices, and in this way cling on to God by faith, and and trust Him, and trust Him in His ways, that God will always do right. And essentially what it pointed to this whole old covenant law and that whole system, it pointed ultimately to the need for Jesus and his redemptive work. See, the old covenant law, it was never a means to save anyone. That was not the role of the old covenant law. Its its role was simply to teach the people. Teach the people about God's holiness and perfect standard. Teach the people about their sin. Teach the people about their need for a sacrifice to atone for their sins. It was never its role to save people. Now, someone might ask, then how did anyone get saved in the Old Testament? Well, the same way you and I do as a New Testament believer. By grace through faith. See, the Old Testament believer, if somebody got saved, they believed in what God had revealed about his redemptive plan at that time in history, whatever was revealed. They believed in that. And that was treated as righteousness, and they were saved. That's how Abraham got saved. That's how King David got saved. And that's how every other Old Testament saint got saved. 
But when you think of the old covenant law, it was that in itself was never meant to save anyone. It simply showed God's standard and exposed the people of their sin and their ability, which should have driven them to God and sought forgiveness through the provision that he had made. But here's what happened. Except for a few who had true saving faith, the majority of the Israelites did not trust in God, so instead they walked away from God and went after idols. And that's that language of whoredom that was used previously in Jeremiah that we read. So the problem with the old covenant law is not that it cannot do its job. The problem with the old covenant law is that it does its job perfectly. And that means it reveals that the people have a problem, that they have a heart problem. They have a deeply sin-entrenched problem, deep-rooted in their heart. So really the problem is with the people and their heart. And the old covenant was not designed to deal with the heart issue. It was simply designed by God to teach the people about God and their sin and their need for a sacrifice. This was the distinct purpose of the old covenant law for that time in redemptive history. And they were in this way supposed to trust and cling on to God. But really, what did the people do? They, they rebelled and rejected God, did their own thing and went after God, other gods. And so by the time you get to prophet Jeremiah, as part of the covenant curses for being unfaithful, the northern kingdom of Israel has already been taken into exile by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom of Judah was also about to be exiled and really, even the temple is just at that precipice of going to be destroyed. The very place where God dwelt in the Old Testament economy. So when all hope seemed lost, God graciously at this point declares through Jeremiah to his people who have been unfaithful to him from the start. Look at verse 8 again, and this is what he said. Behold, the days are coming, and I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Notice there it says that it's a covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Meaning that exile will not end the lot of these people. In fact, God will restore them. And God will not just restore just one tribe or just one part of Israel. No, he's going to really bring the northern and southern kingdom together uh, back to the land and fulfill his promise to them. And that's what the rest of the promise talks about in Jeremiah. You can read about that in the rest of Jeremiah 36 and 37 and also in Ezekiel. And God will do that, he says. He will restore the house of Israel by establishing a new covenant. 
A covenant here, the newness, it talks about not just new as in something was old and now new in time, but more so of new in quality. A covenant that's of a different quality than the old covenant. And when you think about this, this is such a tremendous grace from God, isn't it? That he would still pursue a people who have been so unfaithful and so wavered. I mean, we read, right? It wasn't just once or twice. But from the time I took her by the hand from Egypt, she has been unfaithful to me. But God graciously still says, I'm going to bring you into now a new covenant relationship with me. Oh, what a grace from God. And this is exactly the kind of God that we serve even today. A God who pursues wavered sinners. Sinners who have blasphemed him in ways that totally abhor and demean God. But God pursues them. But you know, the wonderful thing is, it's not just the Israelites, but it's the Gentiles too, who can now participate in the new covenant. In the language of Romans, 12, uh, Romans 11, Gentiles too have now been grafted into that olive tree so that Gentiles too can partake of God's covenant blessings. In other words, it's not just the Israelites, but it's people from all nations who can enjoy the blessings of this new covenant, which includes us if we put our trust in Jesus. So the author's point now in bringing all this up is this. When you think of the audience, remember they were Jews, right? They're Jewish Christians, Hebrew Christians. And these Hebrew Christians were tempted to go back to the old covenant system. And the author is saying, Brothers and sisters, look, the very fact that the Old Testament promises a new covenant means that the Old Testament itself is saying that the Old Covenant was going to be temporary. Do you get that? He's saying, brothers, sisters, what you know of scriptures, even from the Old Testament that you know, don't you remember Jeremiah? And the fact that in Jeremiah it says where God promises a new covenant means that the Old Testament itself is telling us that the Old Covenant was going to be temporary. See, because if there was no need for a new covenant, there would not be any conversation about a new covenant. This was always part of God's plan. God designed the old covenant for a temporary purpose, for a particular time in redemptive history to be a teaching tool. And it served its purpose and it was pointing to something greater, a greater fulfillment of what God will do. But now the coming days or the latter days that Jeremiah talks about has arrived and we're now in those latter days with the coming of Jesus. And so his point 
then don't go back to that old covenant system. It's become obsolete. It's not operative anymore. There's a new covenant in place. So that now brings us to, okay, so if that was the issue with the old covenant, what's so great about this new covenant that Jesus mediates? And that brings us to our second point that talks about the promises of the new covenant in verses 10 through 13. Again, this is the the quote from Jeremiah 31 that's still continuing. And broadly, you could say these promises, you could say it's the promise of a new heart. It's the promise that everyone will know the Lord under this new covenant. And the promise that there'll be full forgiveness of sins. Those are the three main promises of this new covenant that is explained here. So first, the first promise here, the promise of a new heart. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. See, under the old covenant, God's law was written on tablets of stone. It was something external. And just knowing it externally didn't give the people any kind of inclination to want to keep the law. So under the new covenant now, God takes his law and puts it in the hearts of his people. And when God puts his law and writes it on your heart, what happens? You actually love it because it's in your heart. And how it manifests itself is if the law is written in your heart, it shows itself in love for God and His Word and a genuine desire to be faithful to God. And what that means is that with the law written in the heart, there's not this external control to love God on the outside, but there's an internal motivation, an internal compulsion from the heart to love God and to obey Him. See, this law that's written on the hearts of His people drives His people then to love and obey God. Or in other words, God now gives His people both the desire and the ability to live in obedience to Him. Because the law is now, and the hearts of the people are almost one, that they love it so much, they desire it, they follow it, they obey it. Now there's a parallel passage in Ezekiel 36, and I just want you to look at that as well. It says this, Ezekiel 36, verses 26 to 28. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. So what God does for the New Testament believer is this. He removes the heart of stone, that's, that, that hard heart, that heart, that heart that does not want to respond to God, that does not want to obey God. And God replaces that heart with a soft heart of flesh. It's a heart that is driven by God's law to love God and obey Him. It's a transformed heart, a new heart that beats for God and His purposes. See, that's why for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus and really are born again, it's, the, it's that same idea of regeneration and being born again, of having this new heart of flesh. For those of us who are truly Christians, I mean, we want, there's a desire, right? We want to live obedient to God. We want to please God. And it's not just that we have the desire. God has graciously also now given us the ability to do so. Now, it doesn't mean that we do it perfectly. And why is that? Because we still sin, because we're still influenced by that old nature, that old stony heart that we had. We're still influenced by that. So it doesn't mean that we obey God perfectly, but it does mean this. That when we do sin, those of us who are Christians, we grieve then, and we repent, and we turn back to God. And, when we, and we continue to do that. And in this way, we continue to grow in our love and in our obedience to God. God has given us this new heart of flesh under the new covenant to help us to be faithful to him. Just listen to Jeremiah 32, 40. This is again talking about the new covenant, but look at how it's described and what it says here. Jeremiah 32 and 40. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. Why? That they may not turn from me. So two things here. This new covenant, it says it's an everlasting covenant or a permanent covenant. See, the people under the old covenant, the when you think about it, the law was only external and they had these stony hard hearts. And that's why they were repeatedly unfaithful to God and they, they broke covenant. They couldn't keep it. But the new covenant, on the other hand, it's permanent, meaning it can never be broken. Why? Because God has given new hearts. God has put the fear of God, the love of God inside his people so that they will not turn from him. See, many of the people under the old covenant, 
they did not persevere, right? They did not follow the Lord. Why? Because they did not have a heart of flesh. But now, by the grace of God, for those of us who are Christians, God will work in our hearts in such a way where he's given us these hearts that he will cause us to persevere to the end and be faithful to him. I mean, what a great promise that is, isn't it? I mean, that ultimately, if you are a Christian, that you will never turn away from God. You will never be lost if you truly are a Christian. God guarantees it by by giving us a new heart and putting his law in our hearts. And not just that, the passage from Ezekiel, it says that the very Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, now comes and resides in that person, in the believer. So think about it. You have God, if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, indwelling in you, making sure that you stay on track, that you persevere to the end. What an amazing promise. The guarantee that we will persevere to the end. And so, even the phrase that is said after that, I will be their God and they will be my people in this way. It takes on a greater significance. See, when you think about the old covenant again, I mean, there were certainly, as I mentioned before, there were definitely believers who were, you know, who were regenerated under the old covenant. Abraham and David are some examples, right? But they didn't have a new heart where the Holy Spirit came and indwelt inside them. That's new covenant language. Then what did they have? Well, I would say most likely they had the Holy Spirit with them, not in them. We get a clue about this in John 14, verses 16 and 17. Just turn there with me, John 14, verses 16 and 17. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. Who is the Spirit of Truth? Talking about the Holy Spirit. He is the helper that Jesus will send once he ascends to heaven. And listen to what uh, Jesus says here. You know him, for he dwells with you. And he will be in you. So right now, he is with you on the outside. But when Jesus ascends on the day of Pentecost, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes down and descends and goes into the hearts of the believers. So this was Old Covenant administration, what happened there. Where God would dwell in the tabernacle and in the temple. And so in this way, God would dwell with his people. And people would have 
communion with him as they brought their sacrifices and obeyed the law and thought of the law and, and came into the temple. And somehow through that, God strengthened them and grew them in sanctification and all of that. We don't have much details about that in the Old Testament. But here's the amazing thing about the new covenant believer. That God now dwells in the believer. The Holy Spirit now dwells in the believer. He dwells in the hearts of his people. See, if you asked an Old Testament person, whether a saint or just somebody who's just pretending to be a saint, where does God dwell? They'll point to the tabernacle or they'll point to the temple. They'll say that's where God's dwelling. And yet, for the New Testament believer, the wonderful thing is God now dwells within the hearts of his people. There's a sense in which we have become the holy of holies or the, or the temple of God. And that theology is further developed later in the other parts of the New Testament with our connection with Jesus Christ. But what we understand here then is there is a greater closeness, a greater intimacy in the relationship with God that no Old Testament believer would have experienced. Because God is indwelling in you. And he will permanently indwell in you. He will never leave you. And so then the refrain, I will be their God and they will be my people. Now this was said even after the old covenant. So there's a sense in which those who trusted in God, yes, God was their God and they were his people. But now in the, in the New Testament, under the new covenant, there's a deeper significance when it says, I will be their God and they will be my people. There's a greater intimacy in that relationship between God and his people in a way that Old Testament saints did not know. So that's, that's the, the one promise, the promise of a new heart. Then quickly, let me just go through this. The second promise is that everyone will know the Lord under this new covenant. Verse 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Now what is this saying? Now this certainly doesn't mean that therefore in the New Testament age you don't need teachers. I mean Ephesians 4 and there's other parts which talks about God has given teachers, pastors and elders as gifts to the church to teach the word of God. That office has been set up by God. Then what is this talking about? This is talking about knowledge, saving knowledge. But you know God that way. See when you think about it, under the old covenant, you became part of the old covenant by physical birth. You're a descendant of Abraham. You're part of the people of Israel. Boom, you're part of the old covenant. Just by physically being born as part of the people. Based on your genealogy. But here's the problem. 
the majority of the people under the old covenant did not know God. Only few people actually knew God and trusted in God. The rest of them, they were unfaithful and went after gods. And if at all they did some sort of, it was just pure external show. They were not devoted to God. They didn't trust in God. Majority of them were unbelievers. In fact, if you think about it, and so therefore the believers, the, the small minority of believers under the old covenant would go on to all the other people under the old covenant. Know God, turn to God and trust in Him. Know God, trust God, turn to Him. Because majority of them weren't believers. In fact, when you think of even the sign of the circumcision, right? That sign of the circumcision, majority, everyone would have that. The sign of the circumcision. And it was meant to be showing that they were devoted to God and loyal to God. It was a mark of the old covenant. And yet most of them were unbelievers. Most of them were not devoted to God. But what he's saying is, now those who, by trusting in Jesus, are now under this new covenant, everyone. See, previously the, uh, the believers were an exception. Majority were unbelievers. But under the new covenant, everyone who has put their trust in Jesus... No exceptions. Everyone is a believer and everyone knows God in a saving way. And part of that is, again, because he's given everyone under the new covenant a what? A new heart. Where God, through the Spirit, is indwelling every person under the new covenant. And so they know God intimately. His law is put in them and they know him this way. And so there is no need for anyone else to say, do you know God? Do you know God? Those who are truly saved, those who are truly under the new covenant are all, all know God. Just a couple of implications just from that. Now this is the reason why when we baptize people here, we don't baptize children. See, under the old covenant, you didn't have to believe to get that external mark, the thing that marks you out as an old covenant member. But under the new covenant, again, all new covenant people are believers. They know God. And baptism is the first mark of a new covenant believer. So a baby or an infant or a child, or for that matter, even an adult, who does not know God in and through Jesus Christ, we don't baptize unbelievers here. Only believers are baptized. It's the same reason why even welcoming people into our membership, we strive to, as humanly possible, to ensure those who are members in our congregation are truly believers, to reflect the reality that 
those who are part of the new covenant are truly only believers, not unbelievers. Now again, it doesn't mean that we'll always get it right. I mean, we can be deceived for sure. In fact, Jesus even presumed that. That's why Jesus himself has set up things like church discipline in place so that if there's those who claim to be devoted to Jesus and devoted to God and they're living lives that don't show that and over time they continue to go that way, then Jesus has asked the church to exercise church discipline and declare that person as an unbeliever. But the wonderful thing then, coming back to it, is, is that everyone who trusts in Jesus will know God and who are under this covenant will know God. That means whether you're rich or poor, whether you're super intellectual or just average, whether you're young or old, whoever you are, if you put your trust in Jesus, then you will know God in and through Christ. And now the last thing, just quickly, is also that your sins will be truly forgiven. Your sins will be truly forgiven. That's in verse 12. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And then he brings it to a conclusion in speaking of a new covenant. He makes the first one obsolete and what is obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Why can God do that? I mean, the problem with under the previous covenant was they were unfaithful to God. Then what has happened here? Well, it's because of what Jesus has done. Even this morning as we celebrated the Lord's table, as Donnie read from 1 Corinthians 11, quoting Jesus, and we looked at this even last week, where Jesus said, drink this cup. It's the sign of the blood of the new covenant. What has Jesus done? Jesus has shed his blood to to atone for the sins of his people, to be that once and for all sacrifice for the sins of his people. Really, when you think about it, Jesus, the high priest, the representative of man, he becomes the perfect covenant keeper that you and I could never keep the obligations of God's covenant. But he, as a man, perfectly kept everything of his covenant obligations toward God. And as a man, as the perfect high priest, he then gets up and offers himself as the perfect sacrifice on the altar that is the cross. And God slaughters him for the sin of people like you and me. And because Jesus shed his blood, when God looks at his people who have trusted in the finished work of Jesus and who he is, he says, 
no more to be done about sin. I will remember your sins no more. In fact, he will treat us as accepted in his sight, even righteous in his sight, because of the perfect obedience of this perfect law keeper, this perfect representative of mankind, Jesus, the God-man. So how are we to respond? This morning, in light of what we've read, Well, thanks to God, right? Because what the Old Testament saint had at best was just a a, a flicker, even experientially too, was just something so much more lesser. A lot of it was just shadows and copies. And yet we see Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. We have transformed hearts. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us that has exposed our sin, that helps us to know God as he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And now he will preserve us by his grace as he's working in us his law and he's causing us to hold fast to Christ. So how do we respond? Do we say, okay, so if everything is guaranteed and everything is hunky-dory, then let me just live any which way I want? No. No. It should cause us to say thanks to God. It should cause us to love God and say, Lord, please continue to keep me by your grace. And if there's any offensive way in me, please remove that and help me to be faithful to you and help me to make much of Christ till my dying breath. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the privilege that We live in a time when all that you want to reveal to mankind has been revealed and your final perfect revelation of your son, the final piece in that puzzle has also come and you have revealed yourself fully, your redemptive plan. Lord, not only that, we thank you for the privilege that it is ours to be now your children because of what Jesus has done. And yet, Lord, with all these privileges, we confess that we still stray away. Lord, may we realize who we are, what you have done in us, and help us to live out that reality. Lord, remove any offensive way, any sinful ways that you see in us. And help us to live aright for your name's sake and to make much of Jesus. We ask all this in his name. Amen.